Uh, you might notice that uh, I have a new uh, addition to up front here, a new pulpit. Um, the other one that we had was uh, basically a wooden music stand that one of our members had created a while, sometime back, and it, it was nice because it, it didn't take up so much area, but it wasn't really created for a uh, six foot three, two hundred uh, a lot person. And, uh, and so this one's a little more sturdy, and, and you can ask Josh this thing, uh, if we can't use it for a pulpit at some point, we can use it for some scaffolding or maybe a, a ladder to climb and change some light bulbs. So it's, uh, it's pretty serious. And actually, I was thinking about a nice orange stripe to go with the black, maybe. Um, no? You don't think so? Oh. Yeah, there we go. That's right, Randy. That's right. And, uh, man, I, I did pass up on the cup holder model, but I didn't get the shelf down here. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty excited about this, uh, but absolutely grateful for how the God has blessed us. And one of the nice things about being the uh, teaching pastor is I get to pick my own pulpit. So I guess uh, if you don't like it, sorry. I like it. <laughs> well, um, today we're continuing with our I Am our I am series, uh, Who Do You Say That I Am? And, you know, as we, as we think about that, uh, I, I was thinking this week about this time of year and April and May and uh, what that means for my family. And it's definitely a, a difficult time of the year for my family. It seems like uh, most of the loss and uh, disappointment that we've suffered as a family have taken place in these two months. Uh, uh, from as far back as about... Uh, ten years ago or so, my, both of my grandfathers died in April. Uh, my grandma died a year ago uh, this month. Uh, about five years ago, uh, my cousin Abby, who's a day older than me, lost her five-year-old son to cancer. He passed away after fighting osteosarcoma, a cancer of the leg, and it was tragic. Uh, young, such a young, happy little boy, and uh, our family was devastated as a result of that. And A year ago at this time, uh, my cousin Jason, on the other side of my family, uh, lost his wife due to a skateboarding accident. One uh, sunny afternoon, she was riding a longboard over in Sisters, Oregon, and, and uh, uh, fell and hit her head and, and left behind her husband, but also two small children. And so as we come into this portion of the, the year, uh, year in and year out, my family experiences kind of those losses all over again. And, you know, my my losses in life are are pretty tame, I guess you would say, compared to what some people have to go through. My struggles have usually in life have centered around those losses. And, and I haven't gone through super rough patches of time where I've had to deal with addiction or, or extreme disappointment or broken relationships and the like. And, and I know that there are many in this room who have had very, very tough seasons of life. And uh, that's kind of a guarantee that if things are going good now, right, eventually we're going to go through a time that, that's more difficult. Tonight we're going to read from a passage of Scripture where Jesus goes through a difficult time in his life as well. Sometimes we have this, this picture of Jesus as just kind of being above everything. We, we see him as, you know, he's perfect and, and he didn't sin. And so his, his battle with temptation wasn't quite like ours. It was, his life wasn't messy like ours can be. And yet uh, Scripture shows us that, that he was a real man. Right? He, was, he experienced real emotions, and, and he had good periods of life, and he had definitely had times of uh, trial and tribulation. And today we're going to see one of those, especially in regards to the loss of a loved one. So we're going to read from John 11, but before we do that, I want to set the stage a little bit for, about, for what we're going to experience. Over the last two weeks, 
we've looked at John 10, where we see Jesus making his I am statements of I am the door or I am the gate for the sheep. And, and then he make, follows it up with I am the good shepherd. And, and we see how he's our protector and, and uh, takes care of us and, and um, shepherds us like a, a good shepherd does of a sheep and protects us and guides us and leads us and all those good things in life. And, and you would think that as he made those statements that people would just respond to him, kind of like we do. We, we're excited to hear that part of Jesus in our lives. But as he made those statements, some of the religious leaders in the, in the Jewish community started to become very upset because what he was doing was associating himself with God. And that upset them, and, and they didn't like that. And those I am statements to them were very clear that he wasn't just comparing himself to a shepherd, but he was basically saying, I am God. And at the end of John chapter 10, which we'll actually come back to in a few weeks, he makes that statement uh, before uh, Abraham was, I am, I am the great I am, in other words. And so we know that at the end of John chapter 10, that the Pharisees and the Jewish people become very upset with him and they, they pick up rocks to stone him. They're going to kill him. And so him and his disciples have to escape town. They have to get out of Dodge. And so they, they flee Jerusalem. And they end up in the area of the Jordan River near where Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And so that's where they are as we start uh, John chapter 11. John chapter 11 uh, is a story of, of two young ladies, uh, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Mary and Martha, you might remember those names. They're the two that, that approached the tomb uh, on Je- during Jesus' resurrection, two of the first people to see the empty tomb. Well, some of the other stories in the Bible that you might be familiar uh, with them is uh, one day when they, Jesus comes to visit their house. And as uh, he's sitting in their house and he's doing some teaching and interacting with his disciples, uh, Mary is sitting at his feet listening and kind of taking in all the things that he's saying. But where do we find Martha? And Martha's the worker bee, right? She's helping prepare food and, and tidy things up and probably make, make places for the people to sleep and get things ready. And, and she gets upset because she wishes she had help. And there's Mary listening to, to Jesus, not helping out. And, and so she approaches Jesus to make that Mary get back to work. Right? And Jesus says, basically, you know, I'm only here for a short time. You know, she, she only has a short time to listen to the things that I'm teaching. And so he, he doesn't really take Martha's side. Another story that we see of them is uh, just a short time later in John chapter 12 when Mary, uh, again, is in the presence of Jesus and she takes some, some very expensive perfume and she, she pours it on his feet, a, kind of an act of anointing upon Jesus shortly before uh, he goes to Jerusalem uh, for that final week when he ultimately is led to his death. And so uh, the apostle, or the, not the disciple, Judas, becomes very upset at her for wasting all of that money, all that money that they could sell this expensive perfume and give it to the poor. Well, that really wasn't his motive. His motive was to line his own pockets. Again, that's Mary and Martha, the same ones we hear about throughout the Gospels. Now, Mary and Martha have a brother named Lazarus. And Lazarus in, in John chapter 11 here is very ill, very ill. And so Mary and Martha are concerned for their brother's health, and, and they know that he's, he's teetering on the, the verge of death. And so they know the one who can heal the body, the one who can, has performed miracles in their presence. And they've heard all the things that Jesus has done. And so they send word to Jesus to come to Bethany and to actually come, to come heal, heal Lazarus. That's their desire, is that Jesus will come. And if Jesus comes, everything is going to be all right. 
Now, Bethany was about two miles from Jerusalem. It just was right in Jerusalem's shadow to the east. And Bethany, I'm sorry, Bethany was two miles. Now, where Jesus was, was about 20 miles or so away from Bethany near the Jordan River, about the distance from here to Corvallis, if you want to kind of put in your mind how far away he was. Uh, for a journey by foot, that's pretty good distance, but not too far. So that's where we pick up our story in John chapter 11, where Jesus receives news of Lazarus's position or condition. John chapter 11, verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Okay, so Jesus says, hey, it's no problem. Don't worry about it. This isn't going to lead to death. Now, I'm sure his disciples, as they heard him say these words, knowing Jesus and, and having experienced the things that he's done, uh, healing people, uh, casting out demons, you know, turning water to wine, even healing people that were great distances away from him, he, they weren't too concerned about it. And so they were excited to not have to go back to Jerusalem. They were happy to stay where they were, uh, as far away from the, tr- the troubles that they could get into uh, as possible. But so Jesus stays uh, a couple more days. And, and he stays there near the Jordan River until a couple days later, he says to his disciples, All right, guys, yeah, let's go visit Lazarus and Mary and Martha now. Now his disciples aren't very happy about that, again, because they know what lies waiting for them in, in, in Jerusalem. They know the danger that it will present as, as Bethany is so close and it's getting ready for the Passover. So, so people are, are entering into Jerusalem by the droves. The pilgrims are coming from all over the world to experience the Passover in Jerusalem. So they would pass through Bethany. If Jesus was there, he was becoming pretty famous. Word was going to spread quickly. So they argued with him and said, no, we, we can't go back there, Jesus. You said yourself, Lazarus is going to be okay. We don't want to go back there. They're, they're going to come after you. Let's stay here. They argued with Jesus. So in John chapter 11, verse 14, we see Jesus' answer to them. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Okay, now, I think that with him, that he's talking about is with Jesus. And he's not talking about Lazarus, he's talking here about Jesus. So he's resigned his fate. Good old encouraging Thomas, right? No, that's not his nickname. Right? Doubting Thomas here. Well, the good thing about Thomas is Thomas is a committed follower of Jesus. Right? He's committed. Even if it takes him to his death, he's going to follow Jesus. And that's what he's acknowledging here. All right, Jesus, if that's what you've decided, I'm behind you. I'm coming with you, even if I die as a result. So let's go. So there we go. The disciples, they're committed and they follow Jesus. So we find here, again, that Lazarus is dead. And they travel that 20-mile journey or so to Bethany. Picking up in John chapter 11, verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Some great faith in that statement. Jesus' response, verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. 
Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I'm hearing you, Jesus. I believe in the resurrection. I believe that you're going you're gonna to take us to be with the Father at some point uh, when we die and, and, and uh, we enter into our eternal home. I believe in that. Okay, that's what she's saying to him. Jesus' answer in verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And that was his, he turned it back around on her. Do you believe this? Not that Lazarus will rise again one day, but do you believe that right here and right now I am the resurrection and the life? This is Martha's answer. Yes, Lord, she told him. Tell me if this sounds familiar. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. What does that sound like? Anybody? Yeah, a few, months, a few weeks ago, we, we looked at Jesus when he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? Not what other people around you are saying. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, impulsive Peter, he spouts up and he gets it right when he says, You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, so we see here Martha giving that same uh, testimony, that same uh, statement of faith. And I believe that this is significant. Uh, this isn't the point of my message tonight, but I, I believe that this is significant because it's a testimony of a woman. Okay, and in the Old Testament, or especially, excuse me, in the New Testament time periods, the testimony of a woman just didn't hold as much weight as the testimony of a man. That's why it's rather unique that in the gospel or the gospel account of the resurrection that Mary and Martha are two of the first people to witness the empty tomb. Right. The testimony of a woman wasn't that important in that day and age. So why, when we look at New Testament proofs, if it was created by someone just to make up a story, would they use the testimony of two women? It just wouldn't have happened. They would have found two or made up two very well-known or prestigious men and because their, their testimony would have counted for so much more. But here we have Martha making that same exact statement as Peter. Okay, God loves all of us, and, and this lends credibility to women and their role as disciples of Jesus. Kind of an aside this evening. Well, Jesus replies to Martha's question again. That he is the resurrection, not just that he will be the resurrection, but that he is in the here and now. Well, then after he has that kind of inner interchange, interaction with Martha, Mary enters the scene in John chapter 11. And she does kind of a similar thing to Martha at the beginning, uh, where Martha says, if you'd only been here, Mary kind of echoes those words and says, if Jesus, if you would have been here, we wouldn't be in this position. It's, it's kind of your fault. It's your fault. So she lays the blame at the feet of Jesus, that Lazarus is dead, blames him for his death. But you know what's interesting here to me is that, you know, here we have Jesus, and, you know, he is God, and, and she's blaming him for something horrible that just took place in her life. And Jesus doesn't get defensive. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't start telling all the things about his life and the troubles and the things that he's going through that kept him from, from being there. Or he didn't say, hey, I've got bigger fish to fry than just one guy that's going to die, right? Because he's going to die again someday anyways. Right? He, didn't, he didn't get defensive. He didn't uh, argue with her. He didn't come up with an excuse. He accepted her blame. He was moved to sorrow himself. 
Verse 35 of chapter 11, our most Sunday school students' favorite verse. John 11:35. You know what that one is? Shortest verse in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. You know, Jesus was moved to tears for the loss that she was experiencing. He knew the heartbreaking loss she was feeling when her brother passed away. And especially knowing that if Jesus had been there, he could have healed him. But Jesus wasn't just moved by the loss that Mary was experiencing, but he was experiencing the loss of his close friend as well. He expressed his own sorrow in that moment. Now, have you ever been like Mary? Have you ever been in a situation that just really stinks? That's very difficult to go through. That's difficult to kind of wrap your mind around the reasons why this is happening to me. And you cried out to God, God, why is this happening to me? Why are you doing this to me? Why me? Don't you love me? Have you ever blamed God for the difficult times in your life? Have you blamed him for your sorrows, for your troubles, and your trials? If so, I'm not here to make you feel bad tonight. Because I think that most of us have been there. And most of us, most of us have had those conversations with God asking, Why me? Why would you do this to me? You know, Jesus, we see in this passage, isn't afraid of taking the blame. He didn't say, Mary, you should not blame God or blame me for the, what you're going through. It's your guys' fault. Sin entered the world, and it's because of you all that we're in this mess as it is. He didn't do that. He just listened, and he accepted her statement without arguing. You know, Mary here is, is upset. You know, she's upset at Jesus, and, and he, he wasn't there for his friend, and, you know, we have the benefit as we read this story of knowing the end. Right? We can see the big picture of Scripture. We see the whole story. And we know what happens next. But in that moment, Mary was stuck in her sorrow. And all she could think about was, well, Jesus healed someone else. Why couldn't he be there for my brother? She wasn't able to see that Jesus had a plan and that she and Lazarus and this, this situation was part of a much bigger picture. And so she's stuck in her sorrow and she wanted to blame someone else for her hurts. You know, I'm not saying tonight that blaming Jesus for our problems is the best course of action. I'm not saying that, that we should go about and just lay the blame for loss and trials on Jesus' feet. And I'm not saying that Jesus is the cause of our hurts and troubles. But I am saying that he isn't afraid of them. And he isn't afraid of our reactions, our human reactions, our emotions in the middle of those situations. You know, he cares for them. He cares for you. He understands your frustration. You know, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, he tells us that we should cast all our cares on him. You know why? Cast all your cares on him for what? For he cares for you. Okay, when you're going through that horrible situation in your life and you want to throw the blame on him, he's saying, throw it. Because I care for you and I can handle your accusations. And I'll show you that this is part of something much bigger than what you think you're going through in this moment. He cares for us deeply. And we see in this story Jesus' care for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We see it in a very tangible way. 
when he wept for his friends and he wept for their sorrow and their loss. He wept for his own loss. He cares for sorrow. He cares about loss. He cares about our trials and our hurts. And just like he responded to Mary and Martha in this horrible situation, he will respond to ours as well. Well, let's finish the rest of this story. John chapter 11, verse 38 through 44. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by the time, by this time, there is a bad odor, for he has been buried there for four days. Okay, we're not talking about uh, healing someone here that had just died, that this was just a recent thing, that their heart had just stopped. This isn't just uh, healing the sight of a broken eye that could no longer see or legs that no longer worked. This was taking someone that had been dead for four days, plenty of time for their body to begin to decompose. And that's what Martha is warning him about. You know what you're getting into, Jesus? Verse 40. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and his feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Get those things off from him and let him live once again. It's an amazing story. You know, Jesus responded in this story to the sorrow that his friends were experiencing by performing one of the most amazing miracles that he had up to this point. This is kind of a, a capstone achievement in his miracle life. None of the others compared to this one. This was taking a man who is long dead and healing him. And he did this to prove that he had the authority of God and that he was the Son of God. He proved to his disciples once and for all how much he cared for them. What lengths he would go to when they were in times of sorrow. He proved to them. And then he backed it up just about a week and a half, maybe two weeks later, when he went to the cross and died in their place, died in our place. You know, the most important thing that I think that Jesus proved in this moment, in this story, wasn't just his power over death. We talk about that a lot. We talk about that when Jesus went to the cross and he defeated death once and for all. He defeated the grave. Right? Death has no consequence anymore. And that's, that's true. But I believe that what we see here in this story isn't just his authority over death, but it proved his power and authority over life. We see that in verse 25. He made that I am statement. I am the resurrection and I am the life. He didn't say I will be the resurrection and the life. It's not something that we look forward to one day in the future being resurrected with Jesus. Now we look forward to that. That's a great thing. We look forward to that time when we experience eternal life in heaven with him. But he's saying that your eternal life isn't about what you will experience someday. It's about what you can experience right here. It's a now statement. I am now the resurrection. I am now the life. You know, in John 
John 10. We read this verse, John 10, 10, the last two weeks. Jesus made this statement about his purpose. He said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I have come so that my disciples, those believers, those followers that I, that I call to me may have life now. Now. He's come to give us life. You know, there's freedom when we experience that kind of life. You know, when we just have, uh, before, before we experience Jesus, there's, there's kind of this uh, weight over our heads as we go through life. As we realize that it's going to end someday, right? That, that eventually my body is going to waste away and die. And as I get older, that realization, it comes to my mind more and more that my days are numbered. And that can be so discouraging and so kind of a burden on our shoulders. Again, that, that axe hanging over our head. But that's not the type of life that we have when we follow Jesus. We have a life that leads us to freedom. The freedom to live a life without worry of our fate, without worry of our future. We have uh, confidence and security in that bread of life. Remember that a couple of weeks ago? Jesus is the provider and the sustainer of all life. And no matter what happens, we know that we have a future in Jesus forever. And knowing that should impact our attitudes and our actions here and now. You know, but I think it's difficult sometimes to put that into practice. It's kind of easy for me as a preacher to stand up here and say all the things that you should do. That you should trust God and not worry. You know, it's easy to put that idea, excuse me, it's not so easy to put that idea into action. But it's pretty easy to say. Because we know it's true. We know that scripture tells us that. But when it comes to when the rubber meets the road, it's a whole lot tougher to trust. And why is that? Because it's not easy to trust. It's not always easy. See, maybe someone in your life, or maybe you're someone in life that just doesn't trust people. Maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe you've been hurt too many times. Maybe you've been let down by people that you should be able to trust too many times. You've been disappointed and discouraged too many times. And by people that should know better. People that should be the ones that love you the most. People that should have held up their end of the bargain when it comes to your relationships. And so now trust isn't something that just flows naturally out of you. You know, I'm sure you'd agree that it's a lot easier to trust someone we know and someone that's proven themselves trustworthy than it is to just just someone that's an acquaintance or someone that we don't know. Someone that's proven themselves to us time and time again. Well, that's what we have in Jesus. For thousands of years, he's proven himself to be trustworthy. In John 17, verse 3, he makes a statement in that kind of final prayer in his life, uh, that we, the last one that we kind of get to experience in Scripture in John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, he says. This is eternal life. It will, I think it was Lee that pointed it out to me this morning, that this is one of the only passages where he describes what eternal life really looks like. This is eternal life, that they know you, that they know you, the only true God that in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they know you. And there's something about knowing someone, that really knowing someone, the type of knowing here in Greek is called, is the word is gnosko, 
Gnosko. And it is an intimate knowledge. This isn't something like, oh, Brian got a new, a new pulpit. Okay, that's a fact that we know, but that isn't Gnosko knowledge. Okay, that's just a fact. Gnosko knowledge is the type of knowledge you have about the character of someone that you live with. Okay, the, the type of knowledge that a husband and wife gains of each other, of a, of a family or close friends have with each other. That I know that that person will sell out for me if the necessity needs arrive, right? Because they've done it for me in the past and I know that they will do it again. That's the type of knowledge that God wants from us. Because that's the type of knowledge that leads to eternal life. It's not just an intellectual pursuit, knowing all the facts about God. It's a personal and intimate knowledge of God. So this is this saying that Jesus said is that to gain eternal life, that leads to a greater trust in your now, not just in your future. You need to personally and intimately know Jesus. And this is something that I've said several times in the last several weeks. But it's something that's so true. The more you know him, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him and get to know him even more, the more that you will trust him. As you grow in your knowledge and understanding of Jesus, you grow in your love and appreciation for him as well. And as you pay attention, as you have kind of a Jesus awareness in your life, you will see that trustworthiness come out over and over and over again. One of my favorite verses from long, long time back, when I was just a kid in, in, in uh, Sunday school, I remember reading these verses from 2 Timothy chapter 2. It says, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him... We will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Now, if we disown him, he will also disown us. But if we are faithless, if we go through a difficult time in our life and we cast the blame on Jesus, even though it isn't his fault, but we, we lash out in anger and frustration and hurt and we say, God, I don't know why you're doing this to me. I don't even know why I believe in you. What happens? He remains faithful. For he cannot disown himself. Even when we are faithless. Even when our trust is failing. Even when our belief is lacking. He cannot be anything but faithful to us. Now, I was watching a sermon online a few, a few months back. I like to do that from time to time. I go out there as a, as a new preaching pastor, new teaching pastor. I like to go out and try to gain some skills and, and learn some new ways of doing things. And I came across this, uh, this pastor one time. He was a southern, a southern guy from down south. I don't know what denomination it was. And, uh, a black preacher. And he was preaching up a storm. It was pretty awesome. And he made a statement in that sermon that has stuck with me for months. It's something that I've been trying to work into a sermon at some point. But I felt like finally I'd reached that time. Yes, it came, out, came back to play. But this was his statement. Warfare is never successful. Okay, warfare is never successful unless it's inspired by a love affair. I think about that for a moment. Warfare is never successful unless it's inspired by a love affair. Now, as I kind of think of that in, in uh, reality, uh, I think of things like oh, this country and when it began. We had men and women who were sold out for the love of personal freedom. 
And so they would do whatever it took to fight against tyranny. And we see that as successful because they, they were committed, so committed they would go to the grave, and many of them did, for their freedom. And so the warfare was successful because of the passion of their love affair. Now, not all of our battles in life are physical. Most of our battles have to take, take place in our minds and in our hearts. And as we struggle with sin and shame and selfishness and the positive things like faith, love, forgiveness, and trust, that if we want to do battle against these things, battle against negativity and sin and, and discouragement, and if we want to have success in that battle, it must be motivated by an intimate love affair with Jesus, gaining intimate knowledge of our Lord and our Savior. Charles Spurgeon, I'm going to end with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. I love this. It says, Go forth today by the help of God's Spirit, vowing and declaring that in life come poverty or come wealth, and in death come pain or come what may. You are and ever must be the Lord's, for this is written on your heart. We love Him because He first loved us. That intimate love affair with the Savior is going to lead to success in the trials of this life. And these trials, these discouragement, these hurts and loss, that is warfare. It's a warfare of our hearts and our minds. And because of the love that we have, because of the eternal life that we've been given, starting the moment in which we enter into that love affair with God, through placing our faith, our hope, our trust, and our lives in the loving arms of Jesus, we can stand and we can say with confidence that we have experienced now the resurrection and the life. And that's pretty amazing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for how you've demonstrated your love for us over the years. It's true, Father, that you declared the ultimate expression of love about 2,000 years ago when you sent your son to die on the cross. But since that time, Father, you have continued to prove yourself faithful and true and trustworthy to the generations time and time again. And we know, Father, that if you weren't trustworthy, if you weren't true, that we wouldn't be here tonight. But it's because of your faithfulness to men and women through the centuries that that love and that grace that you provide has been passed down from generation to generation. And we're grateful that we get to be a small little part of that a small, small little part of that picture that you're painting throughout history. And I pray, Father, that tonight as we, we go from here, that we will feel the life and we will feel the resurrection in our life now. And that as a result of that, Father, that we are motivated to continue this process of demonstrating your love to other people. And that we will pass on that bread of life. And we will pass on the light of the world. The fact that you're our gate and our shepherd. Most importantly, may we pass on to others that you are our resurrection in our life. In your precious son's name we ask this. Amen.